I think we need a few more hosannas this morning. Hosanna is a word of praise, a word of adoration, a word of exaltation, a word of joy. And I just just love it if we just would, um, you're going to have to turn me out and bound a little bit more, Malcolm, because I'm just going to love it if you would join me in just declaring that word out loud. You, you know, when it's one thing for somebody to come along and just say, Kia ora. But it's another thing for someone to come along and say, Kia ora. And it's one thing to some, have somebody say, Hosanna. But it's another thing for someone to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And I just would just love us if we just all together, one, two, three, sort of do that, do what I just said again, only you join me this time, okay? Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Hallelujah. But it's not enough. Amen? I'm getting into my message here. It's not enough just to uh, praise God. Jesus, in, I think, John 14, as I recall, remembering, he said, you know what? If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. It's not just lip service this morning, but it's the actions that we go on through the rest of the day and, and, and the rest of the weeks that demonstrates our love and our praise and our adoration of, of Jesus. Amen? So, turning to Numbers 13. This is a story so far. And, um, yeah, it's been over a year now. I wanted to sort of like put us in context. We, we've, we've romped through thir- Numbers in a, a few months. So it's been actually on the road. It's been over a year now that Israel's been traveling in the desert. They've been starting and stopping and starting and stopping and starting and stopping and, oh man, all at the will of some pillar of smoke and fire that just as, seems to be just as capricious and enigmatic as those dusty little uh, dust devils that they see in the desert whirling around. What's its point? Let's see if we can... Uh, put ourselves into their mindset. We've been trying to put ourselves into a special mindset. Let's see if we can put ourselves in the mindset of these children of Israel as they're walking through the desert. Um, after all, they didn't know that they were the chosen people. Pillar of smoke and fire, that's all very impressive. But what's its plan? Does it even have a plan? Oh, sure, we're on the way to the promised land, but does it even know the way? It's certainly taking its sweet time about it. Everyone knows that we could have been there in 11 days if we just followed the map. But no, Moses Almighty is not about to stop and ask for directions, is he? If this was a TV show, we'd be well into our third season. We started off with ten plagues, and then we were ordered out of Egypt, only to have Pharaoh chase us down, trap us against the Red Sea. If it wasn't for that pillar of fire setting a barrier for us, come to think of it, that pillar of fire does have its uses. That would have been the end of us. 
We crossed the bed of the Red Sea on foot. Now that was impressive. And just in time to see all of Pharaoh's men drown. And then it was manna, manna, manna. Mount Sinai on fire. But Moses goes walkabout, and we get bored, and then there was this golden calf. That was quite a party, wasn't it? Forty days, and Moses comes down all across and literally throws the book at us. Well, two tablets of stone. And uh, yeah, 3,000 of us died on that day, which wasn't so good. Then Moses was off for another 40 days and a fresh set of tablets. It took us a year just to get out of Sinai. So uh, let's see, what happened next? Oh, yeah. Manna, manna, manna. Folks get burned just for complaining. I'm in trouble now. And finally, some quail shows up, and then more people die. Am I, have I summarized it fairly well? Oh, good. Looks like the pillar is stopped for the night. Too bad this patch of desert looks just like all the other patches of desert we've been walking across for the last year. So, uh, Moses has called a meeting. Oh, good. What's he got in mind now? Numbers 13. (laughs) So Moses, the Lord says to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan which I'm giving to the Israelites, from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent out from them, out from the desert, I'll try again, sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Skipping down to verse 17, because I don't have a, I can't read as well as um, Lauren can, all those Greek names. When uh, Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? And how is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards uh, Libo and um, Hamath. Hamath. And they went up through Negev and came to Hebron where um, Amahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived there. They were, they were big dudes. I'll just throw that in there. Hebron had been built seven years before Zon in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eskol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried them on a pole between them. That must have been some impressive cluster of grapes. Uh, along with some pomegranates and figs. They probably were impressive too. That place was called the Valley of Eskol because the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. 
At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Then they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, where they reported to them and to the whole assembly and started and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Those are the big dudes. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of this land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim. There, the descendants of Anak came, come from the Nephilim. They seemed like grasshoppers. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Let's walk through that. Back to verse 17. We see that uh, Moses gives the explorers some detailed instructions uh, about the land that they were about to enter. Uh, was it, it was and it had been promised to them by God uh, through Abraham and and as their, as his descendants. And this was this was they've been at it for a year now. This was their destination. This is why they'd been walking for a year, going on a year and a quarter. This was theirs to conquer and occupy. So was it a good land? And how hard would it be to make it their own? In verse 31, we see see that the explorers, from 31 to 25, we see the explorers do a, a thorough job. In verse 22, they do come across some descendants of Anak, were, who were, no doubt, some very large, very scary dudes. Many years later, the shepherd boy David would have to deal with one of them. His name was Goliath. Uh, these Anak feature quite largely, I might add, pun intended, uh, in their report. It seems that... Uh, uh, and, uh, for the record, though, note... How many were there in verse 22? They actually named all three of them. So they were there, but there were three of them. Okay? That point figures rather largely in my report. <laughs> so they even got, uh, the, the explorers even got some samples of the fruit of the land. Well done, them. In verse 26 to 29, we see the report. It follows the standard, yes, but format. It's a good land, but there's no way that we can take it. Now, what they said was true. 
There was no way to take it on their own. But they weren't on their own, were they? It was God who led them there. It was God who was on their side. It was God who had promised the land to them in the first place. In verse 30, Caleb tries to turn them around, but he neglects to tell them why he's so confident. So in verse 31, they just restate what they believe. And this illustrates an important point when it comes to persuasion, that there has to be a reason. Have you ever been involved in a uh, frank exchange of views that where nothing is ever settled? I've, I've come to f- understand that people believe what they believe for heart reasons. But if you can discover those heart reasons, you might be able to change the belief. First Peter uh, chapter three verse fifteen um, says, "Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect." So going back to thirty and thirty one, everything the explorers had said so far was true, but it was only part of the truth. They weren't counting on God to do what he had promised. And if they were the spiritual children of Abraham and Sarah, not just natural descendants, they would have done like Abraham and Sarah did. Uh, We see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, by faith, Abraham, though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Yes, he knew he was past age. Yes, he knew that Sarah was barren. But he considered God was faithful and able to fulfill that promise. Anybody have uh, their their Bible on their phone, like I do. I went in and just sort of checked this on my, on my phone. And lo and behold, I found this alternate reading. And you know, my, my NIV text on the page hadn't changed, but somebody had, Zondervan had very cleverly snuck in and updated my... <laughs> updated my text without bothering to tell me. Now, I don't mind when things change because they they said, well, you know, actually, we could translate this a little bit better, and maybe this is actually a, a better rendition of what was said. I don't mind that. But for goodness sakes, if you're going to be doing that on ongoing, I've noticed that NIV's doing that on ongoing. If you're going to be doing that, could you sort of, like, give me a note? Okay, this is, this is the NIV version... 47, 48, 49, minor, minor changes. It's like, you know, who does Zondervan think they are? Microsoft or something? I'm just, just shipping out updates. Anyway, but I wanted, I, but I did like this actual rendition because it gives Sarah some credit that's due her as well. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. So I thought it was cool. 
Let's go back to verse 32. Here it goes from bad to worse. They just they they don't just miss out the fact that God was going that God was going to be able to do that promise. They start to focus on the negative, and they begin to make up mutually contradictory justifications for their fear. Consider verse 32. The land devours those living in it, and all the people were of great size. Does that strike you as contradictory? Wait a minute. Is, does the land just devour its people, or does it support people of unusual size? You know, if it's that kind of, if it's, if it's not a bountiful land, where are the, where are the big people coming from? And if it devours its people, you know, that, that's what, it doesn't even make sense. Um, and how many descendants of Anak were there? We counted them, remember? Three. All the people were of great size? No, there were three pretty scary dudes, but not all of them were in that category. So they're, they're uh, exaggerating, to put it kindly. And in fact, in verse 33, they start to give credence to legends. Okay? Now I had a... I had a bit of a rummage through and tried to sort through what the heck is a Nephilim. And there are um, several understandings of that. And the one that I sort of grew up with was somehow uh, fallen angels came down and and, uh, lay with uh, human women and they had... Or, or spirits came along and had uh, children, and they were these really big dudes. Uh, but I found out that according to um, Eastern Orthodox tradition, we've actually had it wrong since you're, you know that they the teaching was different than they, that they had. They said well, these these sons of uh, God were actually a reference to uh, the descendants of Seth who were the righteous descendants that went and um, thought they'd go hang out with the, uh, with the daughters of Cain, who weren't the righteous descendants, and here we got those folks coming up with that way. Um, and if, in fact, it was, you know, and also the, the, if they, they bring up, if it was actually spiritual forces that were doing this, why isn't it continuing to happen today? And um, that sort of thing. So, they got a point there. In any case, uh, the scriptures, can we look at specifically say, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Now, don't think that the scripture is saying that they, they actually were descendants of Nephilim. I'm thinking that they're saying, the scripture is saying that it was said that. You know, they, we've got this story in the back of our mind about Nephilim, and then we've got this really big dudes. They must have been, they, they sort of put one and two and two together and came up with a, a descendant thing happening there. And uh, I'm sure that was the uh, quite uh, useful for the descendants of Anak to... Um, facilitate this legend that they were somehow 
semi-divine. In my mind, being um, coming from something and being something are not the same thing. And in fact, they were not Nephilim. They were descendants of Anak. But in their fear, this, the people that had gone off and done this report, the, the done this this uh, uh, exp- exploration, in their fear, that's what they saw. They didn't just see a really big dude, like David just saw a really big dude that was was bad mouthing uh, the Holy One of Israel, and they didn't just see a really big dude. They saw. Um, some sort of a legendary figure. But finally, after all their suspect, flimsy justifications, they finally tell the truth. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. It's been my experience, if you listen long enough, people run out of lies and tell you the truth. It might be buried in manure. It might be just a nugget, but it will be the truth. And here they were telling the truth. They did not know who they were. They were so worried about folk legends that they didn't realize that they were the actual legends. They wouldn't find out for 40 years, but the people waiting on the other side of the Jordan were melting with fear. The people of Israel were the legends, but they thought they were grasshoppers. And that's, I think, the saddest part of this whole story. Pastor Carl said chapter 13, but I can't, I can't stop there. I need to go forward and borrow a couple of verses from chapter 14. Um, in, in verse, uh, verse 7, that one there. So, Caleb tried to turn things around on, on, on the day, and then they go off and they have just a really awful night, and they just go and whinge and moan about it all night. And then they call, come back the next day, and, and Caleb and Joshua gather up and try to give them a complete, full report that was the report that should have been given on the previous day. They were, they were a day late. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. See, God gets in the, in the um, uh, equation. A land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. 
Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. That it was too late. Their fears had run rampant all night long. Back in verse four, uh, back in verse two, they had said to themselves, "If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness." Did you realize what they said? Does the significance of their statement dawn on you right now? What happened to these folks over the next 40 years? Come on, say it out loud. They died in the wilderness. Exactly what they hoped for and said out loud. I'm going, "Ah, I've been listening to sermons for 60 years. Every once in a while, this book amazes me. And I saw that. I'm going, oh, what have you done? What did you do? So whenever I see the children of Israel do something stupid, I'm sitting going, oh God, have I ever done something anything like that myself? Am I guilty of it myself? These, these are not just stories about them. These are stories about us, okay? These are given as examples and as patterns for us, and we need to help make sure that we align with what is true and to help catch our attention when we get it wrong. Let's turn our attention back to Caleb and to Joshua. These were men of a different spirit. They saw things as God saw things. They saw reality with its troubles and challenges, but they also saw that yeah, thanks. They also saw that God and his faithfulness carries more weight than anything else. Forty years later, after all the others had died, Caleb, at the ripe old age of 85, asked, Uh, Well, actually, he demanded of Joshua, give me this hill country. I know it's where the the Anakites live. I know it has large fortified cities, but God has promised it to me. I know, God helping me, I can drive them out. Oh, I don't care how old you are. You need to hear that all the way to the core of their being. I love the story of Caleb. It gets me fired up. I want to be incandescent with God's Spirit until my last day. I've been 20. I've been 40. I've been 60. And God has demonstrated his faithfulness time and time and time again. And and every time I've allowed him to move through me and in me and, and to accomplish his purpose, it's just been astonishing to be at the front row of watching him at work. But I'll tell you what. When I'm 80, I want to have 
the same light in my eye, a spring in my step, and, and I want to keep moving like I've got a purpose. I want to be extending the kingdom of God. What about you? Have you let your fears diminish or paralyze you? Have you forgotten who you are in God? Have you forgotten who God sees you as? If I were to greet you on the street as mighty man of God or wonderful woman of God, would you look around to see who I was talking to? Have you neglected God's calling on your life because you forgot that his calling, that it is his calling, and he will accomplish it in you? We cannot afford to be small. This community needs us. Our community needs us. Our friends and family need us. God needs us to rise up in the spirit and take our rightful inheritance as his sons and daughters. Where are the pastors to speak for the people? Where are the prophets to speak for righteousness? Where are the evangelists to speak for the gospel? Where are the carers to speak for Menachem? Where are the parents and grandparents to pray for their children? I'm looking at them. It's you. It's us. And by God's help, we can take this land. We can be the people he's called us to be. And if any of you would like to join me in prayer about accomplishing that, I'll be right here waiting for you. Amen.